Hello and welcome to the Research Connection Podcast, the show that brings current expertise and cutting-edge research and connects it with users in the community. Uh, so to get started, why don't we introduce ourselves? So do you want to start? Sure. Uh, my name is Amanda Ham, and uh, I'm the mom of a child with the label of autism, so I'm happy to be here today. And I'm Patty Douglas. I'm an assistant professor at Brandon University in the Inclusive Ed Department. I'm also the mom of a son who's labeled with autism, and I'm a former special education teacher, too, so I bring many different experiences. I'm Jackie Kirk. I am the chair of the Department of Leadership and Educational Administration and co-host of the podcast, and I'm really interested in listening to the talk this morning. Mm Mm-hmm. And I'm Michelle Lamb, I'm the other co-host, and I'm the director of BU CARES. CARES is the Centre for Aboriginal and Rural Education Studies. And so let's get started. What is the common story around autism? There are a few common stories, but I think the most prominent is the biomedical model. So autism as a neurodevelopmental disability, and it can be locatable in defective brains. So I would say that that's the dominant story right now, the sort of biogenetic model of autism. Autism has a long history. It's been many things Hmm. over the years. So it's been the result of a cold mothering, refrigerator mother. It's been um, the result of environmental toxins. It's been because you live too close to the freeway when you're pregnant. It's been lots and lots of things. It's been a gender, you know, extreme male brain syndrome. There's all sorts of things it's been. But the biomedical biogenetic model, I would say, is the main story right now. And do you think that story would need to be challenged? Yes. Yeah. Tell us about that. (laughs) Without reserve. (laughs) Um, I think when there is a single story that dominates other stories, it flattens the experience and it makes life harder for the people who are living with difference. And I think it'll, you know, if autism is locatable in brains and we need to fix those brains, which is the sort of imperative of biomedicine, then we're not in relationship with the person in front of us or the child in front of us. So that's not to say don't intervene or don't reach out for therapies, but autism is so many more things than that. And I hold it open in my work. So in my work and in the multimedia storytelling we do with autistic folks, we don't say autism is this or that. We open it up. We say we may not not actually agree. Amanda and I might not actually agree what autism is or isn't. But if you hold it open and you agree that your goal is to make life better for all the cluster of people around, Mm -hmm. parents and kids and everyone, teachers, then, then we can agree on that and we can do something. How about you, Amanda? Do you feel like... That story has been part of your life also? Yeah, I would say when uh, my child was younger and there wasn't a label yet and we knew that something was uh, was different, um, I think that we did think that there, you know, we thought, well, I wonder what's wrong and how can we fix it, right? Mm-hmm. That's sort of, that's the way that our, we're kind of trained in society to be thinking. And as we kind of went through, you know, the process of a diagnosis, we sort of realized that we didn't really care about a fix. We just wanted to give our child the tools to do the best that they could in all the life 
situations that they would be in. Mm -hmm. So whether that was like in like childcare centers, whether it was in extracurricular activities or at school, um, we just wanted them to have the support and the tools to do well and feel comfortable. Uh, so that became our focus. So I think that the perspective that you're talking about is, is needed. And that perspective is what helped us to mm -hmm. um, feel like we were doing the best stuff we could for our child. Mm -hmm. And that's not really different than than any child, right? You want the no. same things as a parent or as a teacher. Yeah, exactly. That's the goal for every child, right? For them to succeed. Yeah. So it's like if if you have an autistic child, they need intervention or they need treatment or they need, you know, X, Y, Z. Whereas if you have a child who doesn't attract that label, they're a child who needs play and love and fun, uh, yeah. right? So it's like, what, how? How are we dividing those groups? And they all you know? have their strengths and weaknesses. Yeah. Yeah. We all do as humans. We, we all do as humans. Yeah, exactly. That's right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Exactly. I, I remember when I was a mom, like a young mom with my son, and he used to line up his cars every day, and I thought it was beautiful. And he used to flutter his fingers, and I thought it was beautiful. And I thought, oh, how beautiful those unique kind of things are that my son does. And I had never heard of autism before. And then when we went through the diagnostic process, I was re-educated to look at those things as red flags and, you know, signs of trouble. Mm -hmm. So, and you can never unlearn that. Once you're schooled in that, even though I think, oh, my son is beautiful, there's this other paradigm that then is ever present. It captures you. And it, it makes me angry, quite frankly. <laughs> I liked yeah. it better when I wasn't uh -huh. schooled in, you know, sort of a deficit model of looking at singling out little behaviors and saying, oh, we've got to fix that. And we've got to fix that. And we went through the whole thing. We went through behavior modification. We went through, you know, you name it, we did it. Alternative treatment. Like I was, I did what you were supposed to do. And also, like yourself, Amanda, learned quickly that this is not the way. And we sort of are, what we chose to do, which I which I thought was good advice that we got from some other parents who'd been down the road before, was take what's helpful for your child and your family and do that. And the stuff that's not helpful for your child and your family, and like, then scrap that. <laughs> um, so yeah, like you said, you're sort of told, this is the list of what you do. And, and for us, we found that we did some of it and mm -hmm. some of it wasn't helpful for him. So, yeah. you know, so scrap that stuff. But yeah, the, the list was... It's a daunting list if you look at it like a to-do list. Of oh, my gosh. Yeah. And I remember, I also remember the, you know, absolute silence in the room when the diagnosis was given and also the silence from educators of, like, their, their faces, sort of, they lost all the blood in their faces. They're like, well, at least he's high-functioning. So there's a kind of tragic model as well that circulates yes. about disability and about autism you know that this is a lost child it's a stolen child it's a child trapped behind a wall that you need to get to and that too really does something to you like it I think for a lot of parents instills this sense of hopelessness that unless you do these intensive treatments it's hopeless for your child it's tragic for your family and I think the work that I do really tries to challenge that, to say, look, there are other ways to live in and with difference that are very human ways mm -hmm. that we all do. We, we all do it. We all live with difference. We're all in relationship to difference or it's not unhuman. Like that's the other sort of trope that circulates is like 
there's this alien like it's like the good doctor is today's rain man you know the abc show i don't yeah. know if you've seen it. it it makes me so mad i can't watch it <laughs> either that or i break open on the floor sobbing oh my god but you know this fascination with autism as if it's otherworldly as if it's you know not quite human but human still and that i think really does a disservice too how would you say that you're, you're both mothers, so how would your motherhood have been impacted, or is it impacted by autism? I don't think it's that my motherhood is impacted by autism. I think that my mothering and motherhood has been impacted by systems that don't get it, and that that has been the source of my distress. Mm-hmm. So sometimes you feel so crushed, there's no room to move. So the things you go through the things you're told, the things, the language that's used about your child is devastating, can be devastating. You know, everybody's experience is different, but I'm actually part of this collective with some of my colleagues in the UK, and we all have similar experiences with having children who have attracted the label of autism, and they're all adults now, and actually one of my colleague's son um, died because of the neglect of a care system as well. Mm. So it's just, so we're now a collective and we're doing, um, we're the Mad Mothers Collective. We're doing some writing and so we've made a video and we've, we're doing, this is kind of a little spinoff of the video work. And we're talking to other mothers about how systems make you mad. They make you angry, Mm -hmm. but they also make you mad in the sense of like distressed Mm -hmm. and wanting to tear your eyeballs out because there is such, the understanding is just not there, even though it's not about the people in the system. Mm -hmm. It's about the system and the way it works. Mm -hmm. I would say for me, I think that, I think mothering is largely the same um, in like what we want for our kids, right? Um, But I would say the thing that's been felt different for me probably has been the what you're talking about that kind of makes makes you mad because it makes me mad too is the fact that I have to be an advocate at every corner it seems to have places mm-hmm. that my child goes be safe for them and be a pleasant experience for them where they can like do well and feel happy and participate with their peers so it seems like not not a fight but sometimes a fight at many corners to make sure that spaces are set up that he can do well in them with other kids his age and be able to do the things that he wants to do and that I want him to be able to do. So the advocating hat is probably the biggest difference for me. And I find that that can be a really time consuming role. And it's working with a lot of systems that don't seem to speak with each other. So sometimes you feel like, oh, victory, we finally have that one under control. And then you move on to the next one. And you assume those those systems would talk and they don't. So then you're back at it again. So I would say mothering, the big difference for me would be the advocating that has Mm -hmm. to happen to make sure that my child can participate in all the things that they should be able to participate in and enjoy them. Will you go back and talk to us about your experience with the diagnosis? Like, I I like that part and I'd like to see if there's a, you had the same experience or if it was like left turn there. Yeah, I guess for us, um, our diagnosis came later than I probably, so it wasn't surprising or it it wasn't or like, you know, it wasn't a a world rocker for us because we had expected that for some time. And we started doing things that we thought would be helpful for our child, which he's always loved music. We did music therapy, which isn't like a, I wouldn't say a, 
I, I don't know, maybe it is a traditional intervention that people recommend, but it, it wasn't one that was recommended by like a healthcare professional. It was something yeah, we thought no, he no, would usually. enjoy. Yeah. And so, and it, and it really did bring him out of his shell and, and it helped him to be able to like communicate and work with a different adult that wasn't us, his parents. Um, so that was, you know, so we started doing things like music therapy and we found a really wonderful speech therapist um, who, you know, just played with him. Just tried to like bring him out of himself and communicate in a way to like get his needs across to people and play. And she was awesome. So we started doing those therapies before we had a diagnosis because we saw him struggling and we wanted him to feel comfortable playing with his peers if he wanted to, right? Where he didn't have those skills before. We wanted him to be comfortable with other people. So, you know, music therapy was helpful with that. So we saw some struggles. We wanted to address them, but that was pre-label. So when we got the label, it sort of was helpful in terms of some of the um, paper things that you need to do because um, right. the systems that I was talking about advocating in, they don't care if you just say that there's a struggle that yeah. you need help with. They want the paper trail of it. So for us, I, I would say I can't speak for my child's dad too. I think he would agree, but we didn't really, the label wasn't um, super important to us, but we did need it to get help at school, for example, yeah. or help at a daycare center or at summer care. So it was it was necessary because of the systems, but it wasn't necessary for us in accepting our child exactly as they were and wanting to help them. I think that's really poignant. Like it, you do have to still seek the label. Another colleague of mine on the project, his name is Nick Hodge. He's written a little piece called Schools Without Labels. Mm -hmm. And it's kind of a dream piece, right? But it's also like, why is it that systems need to categorize and medicalize something before we can have a human response. Because if someone is struggling, if a child is struggling, of course, you're going to offer different things mm -hmm. to try to help that child, right? Like it's no different. Yeah, I had that experience too. Where you where you know when you want to help with the things that are struggles, right? So you help and but yeah, the label wasn't important to us, but it was important for the system. For the so system we, we did to work. Yeah. 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 I would love for him to not have that. You know, like that would be, you know, because I don't want the stories that you've talked about. I don't want him to see himself in a different way because of those, that mm -hmm. sort of negativity some that sometimes surrounds a label. Mm -hmm. um, so, mm -hmm. you know, that in, in my dream world, there would be no labels as well. But yeah, um, it's interesting, you know, like, I don't know how much you've come across the neurodiversity movement at all. There's um, autistic adults are organizing and they there are two organizations in Canada now that I'm aware of so there's Autistics United Canada which there's a chapter in Winnipeg so it's autistic adults who have organized they're so they've got policy they've got like it's and I'm working with some of those folks on my project so they're putting forward a different understanding a different path for for families and kids to come right and then there's Autistics for Autistics in Ontario and so they do activism, they lobby, they, you know, try to make interventions, they work with people like me who are in solidarity with neurodiversity says all of our brains are different. Neurodiversity movement says we need to learn from the way that uh, difference appears in our world so that we're shifting and changing the world rather than fixing that individual child, labeling them and doing something really different. So basically isolating them from the group in all sorts of ways, right? Even when they're not isolated and they're included, they're still categorized and treated differently. You might want to check them out. I will. Yeah. <laughs> if you were to advise someone 
either a teacher or a parent, someone who had just encountered a child with the label of autism, what advice would you give? My thing is always nothing about us without us, which is a disability Mm -hmm. rights slogan. Mm -hmm. And so it's go to the families, go to the kids who are living this, go to places like Autistics United Canada, speak to those who know it from the inside. Those are the sites of knowledge to begin with and don't do anything without the family and the child. Mm -hmm. Like the child needs a voice too, right? Mm -hmm. Children have agency. I'm thinking about another uh, talk I have to give today. And I was looking at some story prompts, I think that I sent you. And there was one prompt that like, I felt quite teary this morning thinking about Mm -hmm. it actually. (laughs) I was like, what if I knew? What if I knew? Mm -hmm. I like that prompt too. What, What if I didn't, if our family didn't have to go through Though all those years of like trying to, you know, my sons have memories of me stuffing gelatin caplets because alternative medicine that we tried, like, what if I knew I didn't have to mm-hmm. fix it mm-hmm. from be- the beginning? And I think I did know, but the systems are so powerful that you, you know, yeah, what if I knew it could still be beautiful? Like, what if everybody knew that having a child with a disability wasn't a tragedy? Those are the things that I would say turn to the families and autistic people? Yeah, I guess the, the two two parts of the question. One, I would say for teachers, I guess as a parent of my, like, because I've had these conversations really recently <laughs> at school, and we've been lucky with a great school team. I would say for us, it's been to be, once again, kind of look to the person that we're all kind of talking about and trying to be helpful to and supportive of. And so, you know, in our house right now, we love Queen. And so I've talked about <laughs> dangling carrots for him and talking about if there is something we want to engage him in, recognizing he might not care about that thing, but there might be a way to respect his interests and the things that he's passionate about and really, you know, other people would say hyper-focused. I call it passionate about. Uh, like, hello, all the <laughs> academics in the room are like, hyper-focused? What's that? <laughs> <laughs> it's passion. I think it's passion. Yeah, yeah so me too. Uh, to find those dangling carrots. What are those things that he's really into? So right now we're doing math based on how many people are at Freddie Mercury concerts and, <laughs> uh, and how many people may leave, right? So, um, so what are the dangling carrots and find those and work with them? And that is really um, being centered on the child in my books, right? Mm-hmm. So it's not forcing them to do things our way. It's recognizing the way that their brain's working at that time and try to engage them still because we, I, you know, I do want him to learn math, right? Of course mm-hmm. I do. Um, but I don't want to do it in a way that like makes him feel bad about himself, like the way that he's thinking isn't okay or isn't right. So if we need to do math based on Freddie Mercury concerts for a while, I'm down with <laughs> that. Great. Yeah. yeah. So that'd be one thing. So find, find things that work for the individual that you're working with. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Kind of what you were, were mentioning there. Mm-hmm. Um, and in terms of for a parent, um, if a, a new parent had been told, I would say build your, build a support network of people who care for your child that you think are healthy, good people to have around and keep perspective and know that though some things may be different, um, they're not bad. They're mm-hmm. just different and that they'll be okay. That's a beautiful place to end, I think. But Mm -hmm. if you have any final thoughts. I just want to say thank you to Amanda Mm -hmm. and to Michelle Mm -hmm. and Jackie for arranging this. It was really, really nice to talk with you today. Thank you for listening to the Research Connection podcast. You can visit our website for links to everything that was mentioned in the episode. And for more Research Connection content at www.brandonu.ca slash bu-cares. Be sure to rate and subscribe so you can stay up to date with current research that impacts your community. Thank you.